Well, here we are again, folks. Splendid Bohemians. Bill Mesnick in California. Rich Buckland in Florida. And the program is Put on a Stack of 45s. Bill, how are you? I'm I'm excited because uh, we're going to go in back into the Wayback Machine and going back to 1966. Oh, my, my what a years. year. I was 14 years old and having more sex than I ever have had in my life. <laughs> Certainly more than you're having now. <laughs> more than I'm having now. They are, some people out there are going... It's 14. Who is he? I mean, this is now, are, are there legalities involved in this? Well, actually, there were, but that's another story for another day. Bill, this is exciting. Let me tell you why it's exciting, because it's rare that you get a recording such as the one that we are going to discuss today. It is a standard. It is a classic. It doesn't really fit into the stylings of the day. It's not Beatlesque in any way. It's not British Invasion. It's not Hard Rock. It's not Zeppelin. It's past the doo-wop era, but yet it has this component of being so tender, so sweet, so memorable, and with a vocal performance by not one of the great vocalists of all time, but a gentleman who was evidently born to sing this one song. It's rare, and it's rare that the writer is a writer of such eloquence that he has composed a variety of tunes that you are familiar with. So right, let as you us... pointed out to me, um, this story for you is more about the writer um, and indeed, we will get into that and his his output. But well, the song is Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye by the Casinos, uh, released in December of 1966. It made it to number six on the Billboard Top 100, as you said, in a time that was not conducive to this particular... I, I actually went back because... You talk about having sex. That, the memory, why I chose this song, and it's indelibly kind of glued into my memory, is because I was in junior high school. Now, it was actually in the, um, the week of March 11th, 1967, that it made it to number six. But it was nestled between... The Stones, Ruby Tuesday, The Buckinghams, Kind of a Drag, Beatles, Penny Lane, Mitch Ryder, Socket to Me. These were all in the top ten at the same time. And the memory that I had, I, I may have told this story before on this podcast, but I had this girlfriend named, I still remember her name, Kathy Washkovich, and uh, I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, and I was 13. And we would sneak out of each other's houses at night and make out by the, a stream that was nearby. But one night, she came to my house, knocked on my 
bedroom window and climbed in the window because I lived on a, in a ranch house on the first floor. And she was in the bedroom when my father walked. He heard noise. He came into the bedroom. She hid in the closet. And uh, and then he he went back to bed, and she said, "I'm going to wake up your parents." And I was like, "But on the radio, which I had a little transistor radio that was playing softly, the casinos were playing. Then you can tell me goodbye." So I I'm I associate that song with great sort of early budding sexuality for me, and uh, it's it's there forever. Thank you, Kathy. So when Cousin Bruce Morrow uh, originated the term, the soundtrack of our lives, that indeed fits the criteria for a moment such as that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And also Mitch Ryder, because I always thought it was Devil with the Blue Dress. It might have been Devil with the Blue Dress, although Socket to Me was right behind the casinos at this point at number seven. So it probably was Socket to Me that was playing. Mm hmm. The gravity of that tune and its success, I have, as someone who was, who was attracted to all forms of popular music, I found it so refreshing that this record was accepted in the way that it was accepted. Um, and this group the casinos, the recording is on Fraternity Records. The Fraternity label and the B-side is called I Still Love You. I Still Love You. Now, we have to figure, if it's on Fraternity, the majors were not longing to get their hands on it. Who else was on Fraternity? I don't, you know, I really don't remember who else was on Fraternity Records. Were, were the, um, uh, who... Who the Knickerbockers, lies, was that on fraternity? I, you know, I I do not recall. I'm gonna Google that. Another day, another. You keep talking. Another day, another place. I would have known that right off the top of my uh, dementiated uh, skull. But at this moment, no, I don't believe so. I don't believe it was on fraternity. Um, Might have been Valiant. So this, the, the casinos were nine. Members and they were, they did consider themselves a doo wop group. They were from Cincinnati, Ohio. The lead singer is a man named Gene Hughes. As I say, not one of the great voices of all time, but when it came to this song, and when you think of all of the versions of this song by all of the great artists who have recorded it, including a great vocalist such as Johnny Mathis. It's still Genius' voice that I hear. Um, the group included Bob Armstrong, Ray White, Mickey Denton, and Pete Bolton. Uh, Lies by the Knickerbockers was on the Challenge label. The Challenge the label, yeah. Yeah, fraternity I, I only associate with. But you said a very interesting thing to me about fraternity label when I told you that that organ in the song that's featured. It has a solo and it plays throughout. That organ has always stayed with me, that sound of that organ in that song. And you said that that 
was a um, reflection of the freedom that they were given by the fact that this was on a, you know, a not major label. I listened to thousands of records on independent labels, garage rock, doo-wop, what what I always take note of is that if the recording were put in the hands of someone who wanted to professionally nuance it to their industry tastes with someone with a great deal of experience, say you put that in the hands of someone like a Bob Johnson or a Tom Wilson, or you let Clive Davis get his hands on it for some reasons and make his, let him chime in. These individuals had the ability to do things unencumbered. And I think that's where that great orchestration comes from. I know it's where it arrived for a group called Question Mark and the Mysterians and a recording called 96 Tears when that Farfisa organ just stands out like a uh, like an air raid siren, but without that. Somebody, That's true. Some, I mean, that record without the organ, what is it? But what is um, it? this is a, a Hammond, clearly. Yes. And it's playing with the notes are like double notes, like I believe in in some kind of harmonic uh, convergence, fifths or something. And it's uh, so you're hearing almost like a double tracking kind of thing. It's it's it, it haunts me. Um, but you talked about Gene Hughes, and let's let's go a little deeper into his uh, resume because he, as you say, was not a singer primarily. He was a promotions guy for RCA, MCA, Columbia, Warner Brothers, Capital. He became VP of promotions for MCA. He managed Gary Lewis and the Playboys. I mean, he was a professional in the record business, but. What I found really interesting, hearkening back to another one of our stack of 45s, he got the idea to sing this song when he heard Johnny Nash's version mm-hmm. in 1964. Yeah, a very good version, Johnny Nash's version, yeah. Johnny Nash, the great Johnny Nash. Stir it up, yep. Yeah, I think that there's one. There's always a song in your repertoire that great, great vocalists can make their own all the time on a regular basis. That, that's why there are Tony Bennett's. That's why there are Mel Torme's. Um, and I'm, I'm Eddie just, Arnold had a number one country hit with it in 1968. Not one of my favorites, but I... Not I, one of my favorites, I, but, but I get it. Yeah. You know, that was a cover that made John D. Loudermilk some cash. Well, as did other country artists, and that's another story, but um, the... The Gene Hughes story is of interest to me because I had two encounters with Gene Hughes. One oh, as a, one as a performer and one as a promoter. I worked for him on a country music promotion in Wheeling, West Virginia. In Holy 19, shit. And I performed with the casinos on a bill with a number of other artists when I was doing the rock revival circuit. Um, this was what year? This was in the mid-80s. Okay, so that's like 20 years after the hit. And Gene also performed it solo 
on a PBS special where they put together, they, they've had a number of these specials where they bring back all these doo-wop groups, oldies groups, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I think his wife said that he performed throughout his career as a promotions guy. Yeah, I mean, on he, the side. he on, on the side, but he had this, he understood that the bread and butter for him was going to be in the promotional end of the business. Um, what was he like? He, just a, a, an amazingly down-to-earth, genuine human being that you would not take for being in show business. And that's what I hear when I hear the record. I hear an uncle or a friend. Well, at that age, <laughs> it was like an uncle or a friend coming into a wedding and singing it to the bride and groom. The scent uh, an of, amateur. Almost amateurish. The older he got, you could tell that his, his chops were only defined for one brand of crooning, and he was a crooner. Well, this is an example of a song, a single song, one hit wonder if you, if you would like, that can carry you for a lifetime. Yes, and it did, it did indeed, and it, it, it certainly assisted in all his promotional efforts because <coughs> the song stands alone, and uh, as I like to point out, it stood alone during a time when it did not seem likely that that kind of music was going to make inroads into a Billboard Top 10 and be played in rotation with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. It just yeah, was it's crazy. Highly and, uh, just as a side note, before I forget, the organ was played by a Mr. Bob Armstrong. So kudos to you, Bob. And um, Bob also, was one of John the casinos. Bob the was one, Was one of what? the Bob was one of the casinos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, John D. Loudermilk also recorded it in 1967 and included it in his album Southern Attitudes in Country Verse, which won him a Grammy. Or not, he was nominated for a Grammy. Now the so 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 there's two there, there's two stories here on the same track because you've right. got a song that is iconic. It, it is a beautiful song in uh, tempered in an old school fashion that might have been the last real breath of that kind of songwriting. And Loudermilk was John D. Loudermilk, who also called himself early on when he was trying to fashion his own vocal career, called himself Johnny D, uh, had written for everyone from Eddie Cochran and recorded his own version of Sitting in the Balcony as Joey D. I'm just a sitting in the balcony just to watch another movie Or maybe it's a symphony I wouldn't know I'm just a sitting in the balcony Just to watch in a movie Or maybe it's a symphony I wouldn't know It was a hit for Eddie Cochran um, he yeah, went, I always saw that name 
on record labels. Um, I think the uh, first time I saw that name was on the Blues Magoos version of Tobacco Road. And my, in my mind, John D. Loudermilk, the writer of Tobacco Road, was backwoods as as backwoods as they come. But this is a pretty sophisticated guy. I mean, he wrote <laughs> "Thou Shalt Not Steal" for Dick and Dee Dee, which is you know another song that I love because of the falsetto. But, oh, yeah, um, yeah, I love Dick and Dee Dee. <laughs> Their cover of the Stones' "Blue Turns to Gray," I, I, I love that. They were great. Yeah. They were great. She's still around too. She's with a new Dick. Dick, <laughs> Dick, Dick passed away. Yes. The old Dick passed away. As it's known to happen. He um, was uh, uh, John D. Loudermilk was family. He is cousins with a great Charlie and Ira Leuven, who great. changed their name from Loudermilk to Leuven for some yeah, reason. Yeah. And it wasn't because of Ellis Island that that, that much. Worked. Yeah, no, I mean, but but they were just fundamental harmony bluegrass singers and and uh, great records. Well, the interesting uh, it's it's interesting in that my introduction to Louder Milk was through an artist named George Hamilton the Fourth a country artist, right out of the box, he writes an iconic country song called Abilene in 1963, which becomes a major hit record. George, uh, George Hamilton IV was not related to George Hamilton, the actor, no, was he? No, no, no. Okay, I didn't think so. No, but that's often suggested that uh, the two of them <laughs> were brothers or something. Uh, I don't think they were... Boy, if there were, if there's more than one, the original George Hamilton. Quite a different, you know, world of fame. He writes Angela Jones for a very young David Bowie, a very young David Bowie, who I believe at that time was going under, uh, under, uh, 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 was going under two different names. Well, I find that fascinating. The, the, the career of a professional songwriter, where you've, you've had some experience in that, in that uh, realm, how, does, how do the songs get shopped around? Well, it all depends upon the ambition that you have in wanting to get these songs heard. In the old days, you went door to door. You literally went door to door. You went to the Brill Building, you knocked on every door. And you got anybody who would listen to listen to that particular recording. You shop it around through demos, through labels, through producers, through friends, friends of friends, friends of friends of friends. And it's interesting how many magnificent pieces of work there are that have 
fallen through the cracks. It, it has to be. Not everything oh, course, you hear is, is because... But at some point, I would imagine you have somebody representing you that goes to these various managers and so forth and says, I got a song for your guy, you know. And oh, it happens that way, sure. I mean, it happens that way, you know. Because it, it's such a diverse, uh, you know, CV in terms of all the different types of songs and different types of artists. We 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 haven't gotten to Indian Reservation yet. I think that's uh, an interesting story that I'm going to throw to you. Yeah, but before we we go there, you have to go back to Talk Back Trembling Lips. Talk Back Trembling Lips Shaky legs don't just stand there Don't let her know that she's getting through to you Johnny Tillotson, talk back trembling lips. This is no small piece of work. It might seem like it on the surface, as so many songs seem like it. There's an investment in being a songwriter that you have to be born with. I don't, I don't think you can learn how to do this. I really don't think you can learn how to do this. Because the same guy wrote Norman for Sue Thompson. If you are capable of, of riding this seesaw, you have these capabilities that other humans generally don't have. Um, yeah, well, you know, you wonder, I mean, is that songs for order? Or are these songs generated out of the same mentality and then finding their way to varied types of artists. I think when you take a look at the artists that Loudermilk wrote for, there's a uh, there is a pattern that seems to fit. When you put Roy Orbison and Glenn Campbell and Bob Lumen, forget about the Nashville teens, uh, the Nashville and teens. And James Brown. The James Brown recorded uh, then you can tell me goodbye. Yeah, but James Brown was known to record a lot of ballads, and he was a great ballad singer as Prisoner of Love. And that song alone, Prisoner Roseanne of- Cash, Frankie Valli, Glenn Campbell, as you said, Perry Como, Andy Williams, and James Brown. Oh, how about Break My Mind, covered by Ann oh, Murray. Oh, love that, Break My Mind. Ann Murray, Sammy Davis Jr., Glenn Campbell, Linda Ronstadt, Roy Orbison, Graham Parsons... Baby, oh baby, tell the man at the ticket stand that you change your mind. Go and run outside and tell the man to keep his meter flying. Cause if you say goodbye to me, you know it's gonna break my mind. Break my mind, break my mind. Lord, I just can't stand to hit a big jet engine swine. Break my mind, break my mind, oh Lord. Cause if you leave, it, gonna leave Babylon food behind. Reckless Eric, Jerry Lee, 
Vern Gosden, the box tops and crystal gale, to name only a few. <laughs> uh, the guy, the guy wrote big, writes Big Daddy, uh, which Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins and Boots Randolph recorded. There's a country criteria that's hovering over all Can of you this. imagine those royalty checks? That's good mailbox money. Well, he was able to, especially during the days when, when you could actually make deals that would earn you some real cash based on record sales. Uh, if you had a, if you could, you could live the rest of your life on one song if you were lucky. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I yeah. mean, all those songs, all those artists. Uh, wow, it's awe-inspiring. So you mentioned Indian Reservation which seems to break the tradition of all the other songs we're talking about because we're familiar with this song as recorded and performed only by one group, Paul Revere and the Raiders. They took the whole Cherokee Nation But John was prone to uh, telling tall tales, and he had some pretty incredible stories to tell as to how this song came about. Uh, he, it's a fabricated story. He says he said his car was snowed in in a blizzard, and he was taken in by Cherokee Indians. Yes. And he, he was. A he, say, he said this on some radio station apparently, and uh, had to had to walk it back a little bit. Well, because it didn't do justice to the notion and empowerment that he was attempting to uh, impart. Uh, he spun the tale that the Cherokees, that a particular Cherokee, Bloody Beartooth, asked him to write a song about his people's plight and the Trail of Tears. Uh, Wow. And he even stated that he was awarded the first medal of the Cherokee Nation, not for writing the song, but for his blood. Uh, And... Yeah, that he had some uh, uh, hereditary uh, connections. Connections, yeah. Now, had this been true, he would have been a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And of course he was not. So, yeah, he had to walk it back. But he, it, you really couldn't get away with that now. I mean, no, now it would be it, it, a while ago. Yes, yeah. I mean, now you can't even have a baseball team with an emblem that suggests a, uh, an insult to to American Indians. So it, it's just it's it's just a bad taste. So, but that was a number one hit for Paul Revere and the Raiders in 1971. Yeah, and they needed a hit at that particular moment um, because going into the 70s, they were having a little bit of uh, a little bit of trouble. A guy named Don Farden also had a hit with it, number 20 in 1968. Don Farden. Don Farden. 
I heard the Don Fodden version, and it doesn't, you know, there's only one version of that song. It's Paul Revere and the Raiders. It's that, it's, it's the production, it's the Mark Lindsay vocal. Mark Lindsay, baby. And, of course, it's got nothing to do with Paul Revere and the Raiders because there's not one member of that band playing on that record. That's, that's Wrecking Crew stuff. Um, you could hear, I mean, it's a, it's a symphonic uh, uh, motion picture soundtrack piece, and uh, it does its job, and it does its job very, very well, as, as did Mr. Loudermill. Very dramatic. Very dramatic. So, there's, so we're, able to, we're able to, in this episode, uh, identify two things that don't come around all the time. One is a vocalist born to sing a particular song. The only other record that the casinos uh, had was a uh, was a track called "It's All Over," and that only made it to number sixty-five. And that was and, the end. Uh, that he was, died. That was the an end. untimely death in a car accident at the age of sixty-seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was the, the res, it, they say it's the results of a car accident, but you hear that frequently. Somebody had been in a car accident and the, they'd never recovered from their injuries. And it makes you think, boy, 67, you can't survive a car accident. 67. We don't know the details. I tried to look up as much as I could, but I couldn't find the details of that accident. But um, Well, let's hear, the, let's hear his voice. Let's hear the voice of, of Mr. She News and the casinos, then you can tell me goodbye. the morning kiss Soften my dreams with your sigh Tell me you
just go mm, I won't tell you no Just so that we Tell me you love me for a million years Then if it don't work out Then if it don't work out Then you can tell me goodbye Then if it don't work out Then if it don't work out Does that take you back, my friend? Does it take you back? <laughs> Kathy, uh, where are you? Huh? Where are you, me girl? Well, does it, when's the last time you spoke to Kathy? I've never spoken to Kathy. That was I, it, huh? Yeah. That was 55, it, Five, fifty-five years. Teenage, love them and leave them. Yeah. Probably best that we don't because, you know, <laughs> I have this idealized picture in my Well, mind. you see, that's the thing. Um, that's the thing. Have you... I don't know if you have had the experience of having gone out with someone as a teenager and then had a relationship again as an adult. No, and never have. See time, what time is. It's it's a fascinating, wondrous, for me, a wondrous thing. Um, adulthood, when it's actually conducted, can be a beautiful and uh, stirring thing as age imparts experience and I'm talking about the experience that allows for new emotions new conduct but we listen to a song like this and it stays it stands still that's the beauty of these recordings they stand still Time stands still. They never lose that. They never lose their essence. They never lose their intent. They never lose the dreamlike quality that allowed us to be drawn in to begin with. People will disappoint us constantly. We'll get older. We'll have to suffer the the indignities that age will provide. But the songs remain perfect. Songs won't betray you. They will never, ever betray you. If anything, it's like a great movie. You will keep seeing and hearing more and more and more and learn more and more. And that's then you can tell me goodbye. By the Casinos with Gene Yu's vocal is one of those records that you can hear, especially as... Audio quality has gotten better. In some cases, I don't think it's a great thing. I don't think that digitizing uh, provides more clarity in many cases. I would prefer to listen to this on my original 45 RPM. But I did find it on a CD where it was glorified. You could hear every instrument and you could hear every, every nuance of what this production was trying to do. And it's one of the most successful, and which is why it was able to 
compete with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And it did. It competed in a marketplace in the United States with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Amazing. No small accomplishment for a man by the name of Gene Hughes, who wasn't one of the greatest of all time, but as I will repeat again, he was born to sing that song. Remember to listen to Captain Billy, because Captain Billy's got a cool episode coming up. He digs into his 8-track collection, and this week he's going to give us, and boy, he's committing a piece of blasphemy here, but he's going to tell you why he thinks Tracy Nelson is greater than Janis Joplin. Oh, uh, that one. Okay. And he's using, he's using Mother Earth, the great band Mother Earth, and the album Living with the Animals. And, uh, yeah, you're going to get, you're going to hear Mez. This is gonna, personal taste. This I is, mean, it, no, I acknowledge right. that most people uh, don't even know who Tracy Nelson is. Let me tell you, Bill, in your way, you are a musical and creative insurrectionist. Me. Okay. I don't like to make waves. <laughs> and yet, you're, you, have, you have given your life to a business where if you don't make waves, you get... You get Bupkis. Bupkis, yes. I'm the Bupkis Kid. The Bupkis Kid. That's the name of our new movie. Be looking out for that one as well. And be looking out for another episode of Stack of 45s. We're going to have a very, very interesting conversation about Pacific Gas and Electric. And the late, Are you ready? The late, great Glenn Schwartz, who performed with the James Gang and uh, went on to uh, a very uh, interesting cult life and we're going to be talking about the great Jerry Lee Lewis and we are going to be having for your fun pleasure and uh, edification another episode of and the splendid boho goes to so just be on the lookout keep dialed in and uh, we're working hard for you people we're working hard for you you know turn on tune in and drop in drop in right we don't want anybody dropping out, baby. We want this to be one big family. I've got all my brothers and me, and my sisters and me, and my cousins. I'm going to shut up. I love you, Mez. Love you, too. Stack of 45. Stack of 45.